Welcome to Brandon Avats. Today we have a returning guest, um, Sean Stanley, who's at the University of Bristol. And Sean has uh, previously spoken to us about the philosophy of language and the philosophy of science. And uh, today, instead of starting with a thought experiment, Sean is going to tell us a true story. Thanks very much, Mark. And I hope your listeners and viewers are doing well. Uh, this story is true. It happened a number of years ago. I was uh, in South Africa. And I was uh, visiting a, a friend. Uh, there were a bunch of philosophers and other academics there as well. Uh, what, one person at this party came up to me and uh, asked what I did. And I told them what I did. I, I taught a course in the philosophy of religion. And he became very excited and thought this was very interesting and actually invited me to uh, perhaps present on some of my views uh, at an upcoming conference that he was hosting. I was very excited about this. So, of, of course, I continued to talk to him and to get to know uh, who he was and what he was like and so on. Uh, eventually, we, we did broach the subject of what it was that I did. Uh, so he asked me, Sean, what area of Indian philosophy of religion do you uh, lecture? I was a bit taken aback because I didn't lecture anything in uh, Indian philosophy of religion. I rather lectured in analytic philosophy. And so I, I let him know that, you know, and sadly he'd been mistaken. I, I, Actually, I was uh, not Indian myself and did not lecture in Indian philosophy. And he was, of course, a little bit shocked, a little bit surprised. And in ways that perhaps were a bit more awkward but unavoidable, he rescinded his invitation to me. And I thought that this was quite an interesting way for us to start out our discussion uh, about race. Uh, and in particular, what sort of things races are and whether or not races are real. You see, in this case, this man had seen me. He'd seen the complexion of my skin, uh, the presence of a beard, and had assumed that I must be of Indian heritage or Indian descent. In other words, he'd assumed that I should be objectively categorized as an Indian person. Um, and he also assumed, moreover, that as an Indian person, I had certain views, certain values, and would behave in certain sorts of ways. Uh, perhaps that I would be interested in teaching and studying the philosophy of Indian religion. Um, so question that we may ask is, is he correct to do this? Are there objective ways in which people fall into races? Uh, or is it more of a matter of social convention? In a phrase, do races really exist and what sorts of things are they? Sean, it's really great to have you back. And it's a fascinating story because it raises, as you say, all these different questions. Um, on the one hand, people might think that he was racist for believing that of you and then racist to rescind the invitation based on the fact that you weren't of a particular race. But as you say, on the other hand, it seems like people who believe in race and believe race is very important and, that, and who believe that racism is a bad thing often make very similar kinds of intuitive judgments. It just so happens that those intuitive judgments are often correct. In other words, they correctly predict the other person's race. Um, and when they do that, they're not considered racist. Um, so so I, I just wonder how much racism depends on believing that the other person belongs to a race at all or believing correctly or incorrectly that they belong to a certain race. So there are a couple of different, different issues that you've raised there. And I think it's important to start out by uh, getting clear on what the different positions one can take uh, on this question about whether or not races are real. Uh, some people sometimes call themselves racial naturalists. Uh, we may just uh, refer to them as racial realists. And they think that races are these objective properties or features of people. Uh, these are 
much like uh, height or eye color. These are just facts about people. Um, and in virtue of those facts, people can be grouped uh, in one way or the other. Um, and so for these people, I don't think that they would think that at, oh, calling somebody a member of one or another race is a racist act. I think that they would rather think of it as a statement of fact. There are some people who are Indian, there are some people who are black, there are some people who are white, and recognizing this, or at least saying it out loud, is not racist in itself because it's just describing a fact of the matter. So let's pause on this question for a little bit, this idea that there are such things as races and that there are analogous to other kinds of um, properties that people have. So I take it that there could be two ways one could hold this view. The one is to say that there's some biological account of race and that if someone has certain biological or morphological features that they fall into a racial group. And that the other position is that, well, maybe that's not the case, but there's some sort of social phenomena called race. So can you give us an outline of those two positions? Sure. So the first account, the, the, the notion that race is a, a biological property of some sort, is I would imagine the more intuitive view for many people, especially in South Africa and perhaps the United States. The idea is that people look a certain way or look different in various ways, perhaps skin color, hair texture, uh, nose uh, width or length, these sorts of things. That these physical differences, or sometimes called phenotypic differences, are generated by genetic differences. So in other words, one might suggest that person A was white, that is, they could observe that they have pale skin, and believe that they form part of, or are part of, the white race, uh, in virtue of having certain genetic or biological properties, whatever properties give rise to those phenotypic or observable properties. So we can call those people uh, racial naturalists. On the other hand, you mentioned people who think of races not as existing biologically, but of existing socially in some other sense. Now, the party line on this score is that race or people are classified as, as different races, not in virtue of some internal biological property, but rather because of the way society treats them. So many people will treat me as if I form part of a certain category of people. And they may treat you as if you form part of a different category of people. In virtue of the way societies and individuals within those societies treat different people who look differently, so races become socially constructed. And people would like to say that races are then existing socially, much in the same way as traffic laws uh, are socially constructed. So in the United States, people drive on the right-hand side of the road, I believe. Uh, and this isn't due to any physical uh, law or law of nature or something. This is due to the way people think it's right to behave. They think that the rules suggest you need to drive on the right side of the road. It's very different in South Africa where people drive on the left side of the road. Uh, and again, this is not because of any laws of nature. This is just because people have agreed, as by convention, to drive on that side. And so similarly, uh, laws, norms, and races can become socially constructed. Now, it's my own view that actually that is a mistaken way of seeing things. The notion of races existing socially is somehow quite confused. And perhaps we can get on to talk about that later, but at the very least, that is the standard line. Okay, so you, you're saying that there's 
these two families of accounts or two broad ways to understand race. The one is to understand race um, objectively or naturalistically. So the idea is that there's some genetic basis for, for what your race is. And we can look at genes objectively. We can look at them under a microscope. We can, we can then specify which genes determine whether you're black or white or Indian. And, and then we can, we can say, well, that's what makes you Indian or black or white, right? It's those genes. And then there's the social constructionist account which says, no, 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 it's not the genes that matter. It's how society generally tends to treat people and perceive people. That's what determines their race. Okay, so I'm interested in each of these accounts are, are, are either correct, in other words, or is either correct? Is there good evidence for either one or are there good objections to both? So off the top of my head, it seems like on the genetic account, it's going to be very hard to find a set of genes that is both necessary and sufficient for any given race, right? It's going to be very hard to find genes that make you a white person or a black person. Why is that? Well, it's going to be very hard to find genes that not only control um, the pigmentation of your skin, which could be different for a white and black person, different in ways that overlap each other. So there could be very dark-skinned white people who are even darker than light-skinned black people. So it's, that's going to be tough, right? And then also they've got to control all these other phenotypical features that you discussed. So um, for example, facial features and hair texture, it's going to be very hard to find a, a set of necessary and sufficient um, um, uh, genes. And then on the other side, right? So on the social constructionist side, the problem there is that Imagine a lot of people saw you as Indian. Suppose like everyone did, right? The whole of society saw you as Indian. Then on the social constructionist account, you are Indian, right? But, you know, as, as your story goes, you're not. Okay, so, so it seems like, but that's impossible on the social, social constructionist account because on the social constructionist account, if you have enough people who believe you are a certain race, well, then you just are, right? Yes, I think that's exactly right. I'd like to tackle those issues in, in reverse order and perhaps share another interesting story that, that does frequently happen to me. I used to have occasion to travel to Germany to see a very close friend of mine. And uh, while in South Africa, I may have been uh, confused for perhaps an Indian person or, or whatever, in, in Germany, I was nearly invariably uh, accused of being Turkish. Uh, I have neither Indian nor Turkish descent, uh, but of, of course. Uh, being just raced all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the one country, I have the one race, according to at least many people's views, and another country, a different race, or at least coming from a different heritage. So, yeah, it is going to be a problem. I think in the literature, this is known as whether or not race can travel. Uh, and it looks as if we'd want to say that somebody is or is not of a particular race. The problem, however, is in saying, well, they're a member of race A, we can't quite get them to travel to different locations and maintain their same racial description. Because as you said, for the social constructionists, all that really matters is how many people believe and believe you are part of that race and how many people treat you as such. Um, so yes, that is going to be a, an interesting uh, problem for the social constructionists. And I think that that's a reason to perhaps suggest that race isn't socially constructed or uh, that it's not so neat, that social construction doesn't give us a very neat account of what races are. Um, but going to the biological uh, problems, uh, you, you're completely right in mentioning those difficulties. I think one way of phrasing these is not normally called the mismatch argument. Uh, and the problem here is that the same, uh, or rather the same phenotype that is 
let's say color of a particular frequency can be expressed by multiple different genes. So it could be that there's me and somebody who looks identical to me in terms of skin color. You'd want to say observationally, or oh, they're members of the same race. And on this account, what that would mean is, well, they must have the same underlying genetic properties. And yet it could also be the case that I have very different genetic properties to this other person who looks uh, identical to me. So there's going to be a problem there in that the genes mismatch with the, uh, the phenotype. Uh, and this is, of course, a, a general difficulty because uh, people who subscribe to this naturalist uh, racial account want it to be that there are these, as you say, necessary and sufficient conditions, the set of genes which accounts for that person's race. And sadly, genetics does not, or maybe not sadly, does not give us uh, that outcome. So let me put this to you. So I think you're right to say there are going to be these marginal cases where you have black people who are born with a white skin, right? So they're, al they're albino. Um, and they, let's say, consider themselves black or recognize as black by their community, but definitely don't have this particular feature that is generally considered to make you black. Okay. And uh, you, could, you could play that game for, for many different types of, of features so that you can never have a necessary and sufficient set of conditions. Now, Wittgenstein had this view that, well, that might not be the way to define things. So he talks about games and he says, so we accept that rugby is a game, Monopoly is a game, chess is a game, um, you know, but solitaire is a game. What, what are the necessary and sufficient rules that make this thing a game? Well, number of players seems to vary wildly, whether it involves physical activity, um, whether it involves um, a ball um, or pieces, none of those things are going to get us to include all the stuff that we commonly recognize as a game. And so he says, well, you've got to toss out the necessary and sufficient. And what you want is some sort of cluster concept, which is going to allow for um, you know, enough of these features, a family resemblance is how he calls it as well. You know, the idea that, you know, we, we know that people that are part of a family have a certain way of looking like each other without being identical with each other, that we can say, well, they're part of the same family. So can the race naturalist make that move and say, fine, there are going to be a couple of aberrations, but generally when I talk about a black person and a white person, there's enough stuff that, you know, the group that I'm referring to is going to be accurately portrayed with my cluster concept. So I think that's an interesting question. There, I mean, it strikes me that there are two different ways in which we can tackle that. One way, starting from trying to get clear on what exactly are the, the right cluster of properties. Um, and it, I think that presents its own difficulty. But the other way is trying to understand how it is people generally within a society uh, use racial terms and what cluster of properties those people are using. So the one, the former, might, we might think of it as a, perhaps distinctly philosophical, trying to get clear on what things are. The other we might think of as more anthropological, trying to understand what uh, people generally think. From the philosophical point of view, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to come up with uh, exactly what the right kind of cluster of concepts sh uh, we should, or rather properties we should allow. For example, should it only be phenotypic, uh, that is observational, uh, properties. Some may think yes, for good reason, and some may think no, perhaps we need to include other properties like behavioral properties or uh, dispositions toward uh, belief in certain values. In South Africa, of course, it's widely controversial which political party you vote for. 
the typical view is that if you're a good black person, you should vote for the ANC. If you're a bad black person, you'll vote for the Democratic Alliance. So there's a lot of rhetoric around that, right? So are black people, people who we might say observationally were black, who vote for the DA, are they still really black if they have the, the wrong political ideals? So I think there's a difficulty in getting clear on what exactly the properties are. And I don't and know- if you're, if you're Joe Biden, you ain't black if you're voting for Trump. Right? It's not just that you're a bad black, you, you be black. As you said, there is, I mean, the similar analogy is with Peter Thiel, who the line was, he may have sex with men, but he's certainly not gay because he votes Republican. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and there's similar lines, um, like Zuma and some other African politicians have said, you're not black if you sleep with men. Um, you can't be both black and gay. You have to choose. I mean, that, that's, that's fascinating to me. But, but yeah, so, so the, these problems, are, they're real. You know, these are real important people, these big politicians. They, they want us to, oh, rather, they want the racial concept to map onto these things. You can't be black and gay, can't be black and think of voting for Trump, uh, and so on. And uh, I think from, from the other side, what I would want to say, and that's what, what I'd probably want to stress and emphasize, is that I think the way people, generally speaking, use racial concepts is incredibly various. I don't think that there is a, a standard or, or single way in which people use racial terms. And so trying to, from the philosopher's armchair, precisify what is meant by racial terminology is, I think, a, a very strange task, given that so many people who actually use the terms and really care about it, uh, you know, they use it very differently. However, Let's take the, the philosopher's side here and say, okay, well, we have this family resemblance. At least philosophers can agree to their own satisfaction about it. I think it ends up being a lot weaker because the thing is that many people, when they use racial language, want racial language to apply to a lot more than this sort of family resemblance, uh, weakened, diminished account uh, can actually account for. And I think that, that would be unsatisfactory for many people. Yeah, so that, that second response of yours is actually very clever, Sean. Um, so I think it, it maps onto the difference between what's called a thick concept and, and a thin concept of race. So the thick concept of race is the one that people usually seem to want to use, right? So they want to say that races have certain value in and of themselves, that races can do things, okay? So, so black people can protest, for example, or white people can be guilty of privilege or performing some atrocity, or that German people did this or Nazi people did that. So, so you know, this thick concept of groups and of race is supposed to support a notion, um, a normative notion, a notion around what we should or shouldn't do. Whereas when you're looking at a, a, a cluster or a family conception of race, where race is just a cluster of a whole bunch of characteristics and you need a certain number of those characteristics, it doesn't seem to be sufficient to, um, to support a thick notion of race. It seems to be a thin notion of race. In other words, your race is just then kind of like a characteristic. It's kind of like being a conifer tree. Um, but we don't think that conifers together can act, right? We, you know, or it might be like having brown shoes. We don't think that all the people who have brown shoes are a group in the sense that they can do something together and they can be collectively responsible for things. So the problem with that kind of Wittgensteinian um, conception of race is that it, it's too thin a concept of race. Yeah, I think that's quite right. And I mean, of course, this, it would also belie the way a lot of people actually speak about their racial identity. For many people, racial identity is a really 
uh, deep and important and phenomenologically thick, as you say, uh, issue. Um, and so I think this family resemblance uh, route isn't really going to satisfy those people. Um, and of course, uh, for, for others, if the, the notion is so diluted, one wonders what use it's doing, why, why we should uh, have these racial categories at all, and perhaps we'd be better off doing away with them. And then, Mark, I want to I wanna give, give one more dig at Wittgenstein because I don't like Wittgensteinian philosophy. So here it is, right? So Wittgenstein said there's no necessary or sufficient condition for games. Well, then you know what my solution is? There aren't games, right? It's not that, you know, we need some new way of doing philosophy, which then applies to all concepts. Just say that there are no games at all. And that's my view is that there are no such things as games. So I, th I think that that's right. And uh, I mean, for, for me, that this is... Uh, my own take on, on races. Uh, I think, indeed, if it's so confused, if it's so difficult to come up with the necessary and sufficient conditions, or if indeed there aren't going to be any, I think we might as well just do away with the concept itself. It appears not to play any important philosophical or scientific role. So let me ask you this. If we do away with the concept of races, um, are we doing away with the concept of skin color? So is it, if someone says, look, I'm colorblind, you know, are they saying, well, I don't believe in races, but are they also saying, I don't see black skin and white skin? I wouldn't imagine that they'd be saying that unless indeed they, they really couldn't distinguish different sorts of colors. So I think uh, it's important to highlight or to notice that when people talk about races, they're really talking about more than mere appearance. Of course, that people look different. You're taller than me. Uh, you've got, I think, longer hair than me. Uh, you've got lighter skin than me. Uh, these are observable differences and nobody would wish to deny them. The question is whether or not in virtue of these or any other physical properties, you are in possession or a member of a race. And in virtue of the fact that we can't seem to find races in our genes, we can't seem to uh, find races stably around the world in terms of what people think they are and how people treat each other, the fact that we can't come up with these necessary and sufficient conditions at all, might indicate that indeed, beyond these mere physical differences, there aren't any racial differences. There aren't any races in that sense. So what's interesting, if we look back into South Africa's you know, dark history of race classification, you know, we found the apartheid government struggling with this concept of, of who counts as being part of a certain race. And there was this ongoing treadmill of legislation to try and work out you know, what made someone um, black or what made them Indian or what made them colored. And you sort of see the absurdities, not only in the law, but also in their practices. So, for example, one way um, to be Indian was uh, if as a white man you cohabited with an Indian woman, you became Indian. Okay? So there was a sort of magical thing that happened through you know, legislative fiat. Um, otherwise, you'd have these sort of examinations that would occur. So someone would you know, be brought to a race classification board um, you know, maybe because they wanted to get married and we had a prohibition on, on mixed marriages. So there'd be a, an inquiry and sort of looking at you know, the texture of someone's hair, um, the way that they spat, um, the color of their inner armpit, um, who their friends were. Um, so if it turns out that your friends were colored, uh, so uniquely South African term, um, referring to actually a number of different groups, um, including Kate uh, Malay, um, Indian was a subcategory of colored, as was Chinese. Um, and uh, they would then do this interrogation and they would output an answer. 
And the other thing that you found was that people would then say that they were misraced and they would go and appeal the decisions and these decisions would be changed. So you had people moving fluidly from one race to another. Um, also because we had sort of certain uh, rights granted to you on the way that the state perceived your race. So if you were white, you could, you could live in certain areas. And if you were black, you couldn't live in those areas. So people had an incentive to go and get reclassified. Now, do you think during this process, I mean, do you have this kind of elaborate pageantry game where basically, you know, uh, all the rules, all the rules are made up and the points don't matter. You know, it's just, uh, it's utterly bizarre and is never tracking reality. Yeah. I mean, I think just hearing, hearing the, these uh, remarks, it does make it seem as if uh, the way the South Africa, the old South African government was handling this is somewhat like uh, trying to uh, do magic uh, in the real world where magic isn't real. I mean, it's, it's so unbelievable that this was the reality for so long. It sounds to me completely unscientific. And I think thankfully history has shown that indeed it isn't scientific. But more than that, I mean, it's also ethically very terrible. Uh, the fact that people on completely arbitrary grounds were granted different and unequal rights um, is a moral and political injustice, uh, a crime against humanity indeed. Uh, so, so yeah, I think an aspect of uh, what we've been talking about, uh, well, let, let me say that again, rather, the position that I've taken with response uh, regards to race, that there aren't any such things as races, is sometimes called uh, racial eliminativism or anti-realism. Uh, and an aspect of that is indeed this uh, scientific aspect to say, it's not there in the, real in the real world observed by science, we should do away with it. But another aspect of it is, of course, to note this uh, ethical dimension as well, to say that, look, racial classification throughout history has done so much damage uh, to people uh, and continues to do so, that it might be not only scientifically recommended, but ethically recommended too, to do away with these categories. So now, Sean, someone's going to start arguing with you, right? That person's not going to be me, but I'm just going to say what they would say, right? So they're going to say something like this. They're going to say, but that is a racist view, right? They're going to say that race matters. These people usually call themselves identity politicians. So they, they feel that identity matters. And there's different areas and ways of understanding identity, different dimensions. So one of them would be race. Another one would be gender. Another one would be sexual orientation. But let's just focus on race. So they'll say, part of who I am, who I identify with, is my race and my gender and my sexual orientation. And by you saying that that race doesn't exist, you are committing a form of violence upon me, right? That Sean's laughing away. I'm, I'm really struggling to keep my composure. So, so I, I'm really trying to take the view seriously here. So you are committing a form of violence on me by denying an essential part of my experience and the fact that I am oppressed because other people perceive me as this race, as belonging to this race. So by you saying that I don't belong to this race, are you denying that I experience racism? Yeah, I mean, one way to respond, and I honestly think this, is that the person who says that clearly hasn't listened to what I've been talking about and has misunderstood my position very dramatically. Uh, Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, let, let's, let's try to unpack the different dimensions. On the one hand, there, there's how it is one identifies. And my view, and I think 
this is uh, psychologically played out for many people, is that you can identify with a large range of things, right? Uh, many people not only identify with their gender or their sexuality or their race, some people identify uh, with their religious beliefs um, or cultural heritage of some sort, uh, being proud to be South African, for example. So, I mean, people can indeed identify with all sorts of things. And by me saying that some of these things that they identify with don't exist in the real world, doesn't take away the fact that they do thereby identify with something unreal. In other words, or to put that a bit differently, it is possible that there aren't any races and yet that people think there are, just as it's possible that there aren't any witches, even though many people think that there are witches. And so indeed, just as in the case of witches, where very many women have been persecuted because they've been assumed to practice witchcraft, um, so many people have been persecuted because they, it's assumed that they form part of a racial group. Uh, but in the case of witches, sadly, there aren't any. And I'm saying... Sadly. <laughs> I think it would be lovely if, you know, Harry Potter was some sort of depiction of the real world. I would love that. <laughs> but, but yes, I, I, I'm sad for that. But I'm not so sad that there aren't uh, any good reasons to believe that there are races. So, so yes, I mean, for, the, for this person who thinks that I'm somehow erasing their identity... I don't mean to be. They should identify with whatever they wish. It's just that some of the things that people can identify with do not exist in the real world. So you're not denying the existence of, of racism. You're denying the existence of race. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it is, of course, possible to be prejudiced against people on arbitrary reasons because of how they look, for example, because of uh, who they fall in love with or whatever it happens to be. Of course, we can discriminate against people and that does and has happened in the past um, for reasons that are not reflective of the way the world is. Um, and indeed, you know, we can even talk about structural racism. I wouldn't uh, deny that either, although I, I would have a different account of what structuralism is. But yes, indeed, the social uh, structures, society can be set up so as to discriminate against people based on the way they look or based on their gender or their sexuality. Uh, and yet, uh, the way they look does not have to be reflective of any real racial property. Yeah, so I like your witch analogy. So you can say that, you know, there were Salem witch trials. Um, there were women who were believed to be witches who were killed because they were believed to be witches, even though there are no witches. And you can say the same about racism. So you can say there were people who were believed to be black were persecuted on the basis of that belief, even if there is no such thing as being black or being white. Now, I want to ask you something else. I mean, you sort of talked about this notion that people are, should be free to self-identify. So, I mean, the kind of most absurd kind of self-identification would be um, people who call themselves dragonkins, okay? So they identify as dragons. Um, they say, no, I'm not a human being, I'm a dragon, okay? Um, now, it doesn't appear to reflect reality, uh, but it is true that they identify that way, right? Um, and they might might have a community of fellow dragonkins. Um, but now here we're going to sort of, I think, rather interesting and dangerous territory because there's an academic who is... Only uh, now, Mark. Only, only now is it dangerous. <laughs> I mean, I've been trying, Mark. I've been trying to make this dangerous. I'm sorry. This is a safe place for dangerous ideas. Um, <laughs> so why I say it's dangerous is because there's a... Um, a journal of feminist philosophy called Hypatia. And a budding young academic wrote a piece on um, uh, 
whether you can be whether the, the arguments in favor of the existence of transgender people match the existence of people that are transracial and so um why this is dangerous is that she said well it seems to be the case that if someone can identify um as being as having a different gender to the one in which they were born with or assigned at birth with so and that we culturally accept that and we say yes of course someone can identify uh, as a man or they or zer or whatever it is um, and that they have the freedom to do so and we should recognize that well then similarly we should think similar things about people who change their race so rachel dollarzal being the prominent example of someone who was let's say uh, born white would have been described as white um, and you know grew an affinity to black culture went to a to howard university which is sort of called a black university we can talk about whether these things exist at all um, changed uh, her skin color changed her hairdress and and her political views so she was um, part of the um, the NAACP, which is the uh, National American Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Um, colored being the term that was in vogue in the early 1900s, which I would assume now is a banned term in America. Um, anyway, so she was uh, ridiculed and uh, attacked for lying about her race, for saying, how dare you pose as a black woman? You, you are white and you are a liar. Um, whereas this line is not um, offered against those that are trans. You know, if you said that you are lying about your gender, that would be one of the most politically incorrect things you could say. So how do you make sense of this, uh, this mess that we have here? So I remember the paper that you're talking about. So I'd read it and I thought it was uh, interesting in itself. Um, I thought personally that it was a pity that the journal responded the way it did. I think it, it eventually retracted the article. I'm not it was unpublished. It was as if it had never been. Mm. And uh, Better yeah. Than <laughs> I remember that um, the, the author in question, I can't remember her name, uh, received a lot of online uh, bullying, I suppose you'd call it. Um, yeah, look, I, I thought that argument was probably quite right, that the way in which uh, we allow people to identify as whatever gender they feel they, they are part of. Um, so similar reasoning should suggest that we should allow people to identify as whatever race they want to be. Um, I mean, on, on that score, I think the very harsh and extreme negative reaction that uh, she received, that, that author, is perhaps because in society, perhaps generally, but maybe especially in the US and in South Africa, people do take a very essentialist view regarding what races are. They, they really do, on the whole, think of race as something you're born with, something you inherit from your parents, something quasi-biological, genetic. Um, and for this for this reason, I think they, they had a very extreme reaction against her. I think they also believe that races uh, somehow influence one's experience of the world. And so that unless one is really born in one or another racial group, one won't be able to have the relevant sort of experiences, uh, which perhaps qualify one as being a legitimate or proper or full member of that racial group. And I suppose that the, the accusation, at least against Rachel Tolezal, was that she didn't have the requisite sort of experiences. This, of course, goes back to what you were saying earlier about the family resemblance uh, notion of races. Uh, here we're seeing that you should be born in the right sort of way, you should have the right sort of experiences, and of course this is all questionable. Um, but I don't, I, I think this is simply opposed to my own view that racial identity uh, simply doesn't exist. There aren't any different races. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, if somebody really wanted to identify with something that wasn't real, I wouldn't want to stop them. And I don't think anybody should have stopped uh, Rachel or anybody else who found the label transracial to be an appropriate one for, for them. Okay, so Sean, I'm going to play the role of the identity politician again, right? And I'm going to say to you, okay, fine. So you're not denying the existence of racism. You are denying the existence of race. But hold on, you're not, you're not going to get away from get away with it that quickly right so so as the identity politician i'm going to say but i want to say that in virtue of people belonging to certain races that certain atrocities have happened and that certain races need to feel responsible for those atrocities um and also just responsible for a level of uh uh, the, the number of resources they have access to and perhaps the power they have access to um, which other races don't have access to as readily so, for example, a lot of people believe that there is a phenomenon of white privilege, right? So white people are privileged in certain ways. And as you say, what comes along with that is the belief that they have a certain perspective and that they can't share the perspective of black people. And, and if you're now saying that there aren't races, if you're saying that there is no race, then you're effectively saying there's no such thing as white people. Are you then also saying that there's no such thing as white privilege? I actually, I mean, I can't hide away from this. I did write an article some years ago explaining that indeed there's no such thing as white privilege either. So I suppose I perhaps am stuck with that for you. But yeah, I mean, it's a trivial implication of what I've said that if there aren't any racial properties, then there can't be any moral properties attributed to any racial group. Uh, however, I would suppose, I'll say two things, the one charitable and the one more critical. The charitable thing that, that I'll say is that I think people who are concerned about uh, racial privilege or white privilege are hinting at, however uh, blurrily, uh, a phenomenon that is real in South Africa and in the United States and many parts of the world, which is that on the whole, many people have benefited from a racial injustice uh, and those people enjoy certain privileges that other people don't enjoy. Um, and that this is something important and something that we need to take seriously. Uh, and so in that sort of very loose sense, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm privileged in certain ways, you're privileged in certain ways. Uh, my mom is the beneficiary of an unequal uh, economy and so on and so on. There are many privileges that people have and it's important to take account of them. The more critical thing I should say is that I think the way white privilege is spoken about uh, and other forms of privilege as well, uh, male privilege, uh, heterosexual privilege and so on, the way privilege is spoken about generally is rather imprecise. The truth is that in some, rather, depending on the, the situation one finds themselves in, different people will enjoy different advantages to different degrees. And it becomes quite difficult to generalize uh, about what those advantages may be. There are certain ways, for example, in which, as a person who does have dark skin, I would be disadvantaged in certain areas. However, as a person who has the sort of accent that I do have, I was very advantaged in terms of uh, my lecturing. Many people immediately thought that what I was saying was the truth and very clever just because I sound like it. Uh, somebody who looks perhaps paler than me and yet speaks with, let's say, a very thick Afrikaans accent may have less privileges in that situation. So privilege and power is something that isn't an absolute property of people, but is something that is context dependent. And I think if we were to have a really serious conversation, which I think is worth having, about these sorts of things, we should be prepared to deal with the nuances. Um, and I think sadly, many people 
are either unprepared to do that uh, or unable to because they haven't thought sufficiently about it. Yeah, so I think you raise an important question here. So you might think, for example, that there, there are no such things as races, but you could have this mistaken belief in it that's very widespread, like we talked about with witchcraft. And so, you know, during apartheid, those that were understood by the state to be white were accorded certain legal privileges, as I say. And so it seems to be fair to say that there was something like a white privilege, even if it wasn't really tracking a group, but merely a perceived group. And then the question is whether that thing endures in all contexts. Now, it seems to be that after the end of apartheid, you might very well have had some entrenched advantages because of the way the state perceived you. Um, but it's not clear that that always persists, and it definitely wouldn't necessarily persist uh, either over time or in different countries. So if you, as a person who, let's say, would be classified as white in a particular country, goes to North Korea, it is not clear to me that you're going to be afforded any additional privileges because of that. You know, um, you may very well be tossed into a gulag because you didn't abide by you know, the diktats of um, Kim Jong-un, um, and you can't say, but hold on, I have a white privilege, right? Um, you might think, for example, that if you are part of a majority um, racial group in a country, that you get certain privileges because that society accords them to you, but that if you move to a place where you're a, a racial minority, that might not be the case at all. In fact, you may be persecuted for it. So the idea that uh, you know, race privileges at attach throughout time and space just doesn't seem to be borne out by the facts. Yeah, I think that's quite right. I mean, perhaps it's, it should be fair to note that the notion of white privilege, I don't think was ever meant to be uh, so strenuously looked at and engaged. I think it was always meant to be a bit of an, uh, an intuitive notion, the, the idea that generally speaking, in some other sense, uh, some of us do have uh, privileges in some cases because of the way that we look. But I think maybe, sadly, many people have taken that notion a, a little bit too seriously. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's something that's interesting about the way in which people discuss white privilege and related notions. Just like any other term in science, it can fail to map onto things. And as in any other science, we do try to correct ourselves. I think, sadly, white privilege, or the notion of privilege generally, is one which isn't all that empirically useful and in ways should probably be done away with as well. Uh, or at the very least, people should try to acknowledge that it does have its shortcomings. I think if you were to press somebody about it, they would acknowledge that there are some shortcomings to it. But that often isn't so very publicly uh, made clear. So there seems to be something obfuscatory about racial language as well. So there's a, a writer, Coleman Hughes, um, who who says, you know, if you, if you sort of look down into the subcategories of those that are considered white and those that are considered black, you know, so, you know, white Americans have varying ancestries. So there are those that were Italian and Irish when they first arrived in America were certainly not considered white. There are those from Russia and those from Germany. Um, and he finds that in terms of um, GDP per capita averages, those groups do very, very differently from each other. There isn't a sort of you know, a, a white number on, on earnings, it turns out, for example, that, um, that Russian white Americans do much better than their Italian counterparts. And he finds the same with those that are considered black in America, that they are, let's say, those that um, um, come from the Caribbean um, and, let's say, would be perceived from an outside perspective as you know, being as black as someone that was um, an African-American. Um, 
but their economic outcomes are quite different. Their behaviors are different. Um, so what you might have is that this racial term is covering up something else like a cultural attitude, like a religious preference. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, that there's this notion of white people who come from all different parts of the world, worship different gods, speak different languages, but are all the same just strikes me as, you know, patently absurd. Yes, I agree. I mean, much the way uh, Paul Churchland would have thought of folk psychology, notions of beliefs, desires, these sorts of things, as, in his words, a radically false theory of psychology. Um, so I think it probably is true that these notions of, or these racial notions are part of a radically false sociology. Um, the social world simply doesn't look the way it should uh, if races were real or were, were there. Um, and I think that's perhaps very difficult for people to accept because many people, as we said earlier, uh, really do identify or claim to identify with what they take to be their, their racial identity. Um, I'm not so sad to say that I just don't think that's true. And I find, I find the sociological perspective not very compelling at all. Uh, because you're right, when you do, as it were, take a magnifying glass of things, you'll find massive variations uh, in all sorts of different societies that don't very easily track along color lines. So this seems to be the common thread in this discussion, is that if you try to understand race um, as a homogenizing feature, in other words, if you have a certain race, then you have these properties that go along with it, whether it be moral properties, phenotypical properties, um, biological properties, genetic properties, behavioral properties, cultural properties, language properties, religious properties, it fails, right? You, you, can never, you can never say that if you're black, then you will have this set of properties, or if you're white, then you'll have this set of properties. And then one way of dealing with the problem is the Wittgensteinian roots of family concepts, but we said that doesn't really work either. And so you land up in a bit of a mess. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And I think, um, of course, the, the option that I think is the right one is to, to try and do away with uh, all of this. Uh, I think we, we can probably describe society, describe ourselves, describe the ways we interact uh, more accurately uh, using different terminology. Um, I think, I mean, the only thing that really, that, that I think concerns people is that they think if you do this, then you'll no longer be able to uh, describe racial injustices, which we'd like to say are real and important and something to be, to be dealt with. Um, but as we discussed earlier, that's not necessarily the case either. So it seems as if you really can describe uh, not only the way the world is, but also what's wrong with the world uh, without necessarily relying on the existence uh, of races or, or racial properties. So I want to push you on that, if that's okay, Sean. Um, because I'm also an eliminativist about race, but more than race. I'm an eliminativist about social phenomena generally. Race is just one type, but I don't believe in groups generally, and race is just one type of group. But let, let's put, put aside that type of eliminativism for a moment. Um, I'm very interested how, as, as an eliminativist about race, you can understand, and you alluded, it, alluded to it earlier, the idea of structural racism. So it seems quite easy to account for individual A is racist towards individual B because you can say that A believes B has a certain race or belongs to a certain racial group and treats them poorly based upon that belief, right? But now if we're talking about structural racism, we might be talking about not a person treating someone poorly, maybe not even a group, but maybe a social institution or a social structure which doesn't have beliefs. 
then how do we cash out structural racism? Well, I think that's, that's a really interesting set of questions. Um, and much as uh, you don't believe in social things, so to put it in a, a, a silly way, I don't believe in beliefs. Um, so, oh, you don't believe in beliefs? No. <laughs> <laughs> I love to meet people that are crazier than I am, sure. <laughs> so just, just to be uh, clear and fair for your audience, um, the notion of uh, beliefs and desires leading to actions um, is, is part of what people call uh, folk psychology. Um, and this is the idea that the way in which we, we act is a combination of what we think the world is like and what we'd like the world to be, and that motivates us or causes us uh, to behave in one way or the other. Um, I am an instrumentalist about beliefs and desires, so uh, I think that they are useful at describing people's behavior uh, or even predicting people's behavior in some situations. But I also think there are going to be times when, or levels at which, it's not going to be useful to use those terms. So for me, when I'm trying to understand what racism is, uh, I, have, I have a behaviorist notion of racism. So racism for me is not uh, when somebody has a racist intention and acts upon that intention. It's simply the act of being uh, discriminatory, let's say, itself. So it's the behavior that matters for me. Uh, and there are lots of different accounts of racism as well. That's perhaps its own other topic. Um, but anyway, so between two individuals, the, where racism resides is in the way they interact with one another. And so for me, if it's an individual interacting in a certain way or a social institution giving some sort of outcome, uh, it can all be cashed out behaviorally. Uh, there's discrimination or oppression of some sort, uh, and it doesn't really require intentions from my point of view. So I take it that you could, in other words, have a society that structures itself in a way which accords certain benefits or burdens on the grounds of perceived race, and that would make it a structural racism. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the account that I, I have in mind, I think it's a relatively popular one, is one developed by a philosopher called Sally Haslanker um, in a paper she wrote called uh, What Are Structural exp uh, Explanations, I think. Um, I'll, I'll try and get more details later. But yeah, um, she wrote a paper about it in which uh, she described social structures as basically um, abstract functional states where there are different nodes which relate to different uh, possible individuals in a society that are causally related in some other way. And so, yeah, you can organize people to be such as to give certain groups of people um, disadvantages and other groups of people advantages. Um, even if nobody uh, intends that to be the case. So here's an example that I think a lot of people like. Um, there's structural injustice in education. What people mean by that is, for example, that uh, black people on the whole uh, don't get degrees, let's say. Uh, so the, the percentage of uh, university graduates tends to skew toward white people, whereas in a country which is demographically like South Africa, we wouldn't think that that should occur. So it seems that there's some sort of injustice. Um, but this doesn't have to occur because anybody is preventing black people from graduating. It can happen, for example, because on the whole, black people maybe go to uh, less resource schools, um, have less resources uh, to use or utilize while they're studying, and find university to be more difficult. Uh, because, for example, they don't have access to the right sort of textbooks, so they don't have access to uh, extra tutoring, stuff like that. So in that way, it's not that anybody has made it the case that 
black people should graduate less than white people. It's just that on the whole, maybe black people have less access to resources, which gives them a disadvantage in comparison to many of their white colleagues who will have uh, those resources. So that's one way of seeing uh, an in a structural injustice, which is not the consequence of anybody's intentions or any given person's actions, uh, can indeed continue no matter who's in charge of which universities. Um, but yeah, it is uh, structural in that sense. But this is a relatively reduced account of structuralism. There are thicker ways of talking about it. I take yeah, it as a bit of... Oh, no, go ahead, Jason. So yeah, this is a thinner concept of structural uh, inequality. So um, basically now what that does is it replaces the idea of structural racism and replaces it with structural or, or race, racial inequality. The idea that there is a different uh, set of, of resources and opportunities available to different sets of people, rather than saying that that has been intentionally generated. And when you reduce from that thick concept to that thin concept, certain things go away. So you can't, for example, protest against a structure or a person if that person well, you can't protest against a structure because that structure isn't a person. That, that structure doesn't have uh, beliefs and desires and intentions of its own. So you can't, you can't say that structure is no good. I mean, you can. You can say there's a problem with the structure, but, but you can't place responsibility in a moral sense on a structure if that structure doesn't have intentions. Yeah, that's quite right. I mean, maybe that's part of the tragedy of, of the world is that there's quite a lot of bad things that go on that you know, nobody has actually made happen. Um, and there's nobody to blame for it. So there's nobody's head we can put on, on, on a pike, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I think, I think many people speak about this in a very confused way. They do reify structures to be these sorts of individuals with these very nasty intentions. And I think that this is partly because it's simply a psychologically attractive way of thinking about things. We like to think of the world as being controlled by certain powerful people and if only we could get them out of the way, things would be better. I think it's psychologically attractive to think that way, but I also, to be quite frank, think that many people have simply not really understood the philosophy behind a lot of these social scientific notions. It is difficult, I mean, I don't expect people to, but um, I think many people aren't quite aware of how it is these notions are used, what it is, the, what philosophy there is behind them, and how it is, indeed, you can play around with these ideas and have uh, different uh, strengths uh, of these uh, positions. Can we draw a distinction between, let's say, uh, an unjust system um, and one which just has differential outputs? So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is um, in California, it turns out that 90% of donut stores are owned by Cambodians. Okay. So not at all demographically representative. Right, we just um, have this anomaly in history, and the reason why we have it is that um, you had uh, a Cambodian man who was driven um, out of Cambodia by the Khmer Rouge. He he started working uh, in a donut store, saved up enough money, bought his own donut store, uh, and then you know invited Cambodian friends to start their own stores, and he lent the money, and that's why they dominate this industry. Right, so there's no injustice that occurs. Um, versus the other situation where you've got you know, a differential output because you had an unjust system in place. So for example, you know, in a society that um, persecuted women, um, you might expect to find that, you know, because of that persecution, there are less women in certain areas of enterprise. So 
differential outputs don't necessarily point us towards an injustice. There could be some other value neutral reason for why we have it. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a really good point and a really interesting story. I didn't know that about um, the donut shops. Um, I want to name a, my band. I don't have a band, but if I create a band, I want to call it the Cambodian Cambodian Donut Store. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a great name. Um, but yeah, Mark, I think it's it's an important point, right? Um, not all inequalities are going to be uh, cases of of racism or of sexism or whatever, and it's it's an intellectual error to think otherwise. Um, but yeah, I, I think perhaps sadly, there's not often much nuance uh, used when we speak about racism. And uh, yes, it's not very fashionable to be all that nuanced about it. But Mark, I think you raised an excellent point. And I think you're quite right. I mean, the other more contentious one that comes up is that um, our criminal justice system uh, is enormously sexist that um, almost all people that are prosecuted for crimes and go spend time behind bars are men, 94% of them. And I think if we really care about uh, gender equality, you know, we need to ensure that more women are locked up. You know, that's what justice requires. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I, mean, I think many, many women may be tempted now to commit certain crimes against <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Don't perform the crimes against me. <laughs> So it's, it's, this, it's this weird notion of representativity um, is the only way to achieve justice, that the only way to achieve justice in society is to make sure all groups are equally represented in all things. But then you get these super weird counterexamples like the Cambodian um, donut stores and women not being um, adequately represented in prisons. Yeah, I would imagine that representativity is maybe the first step um, not the final step. And I think sadly many people see it as the final step. I think it's meant to be a proxy for uh, basically what, what, what Mark referred to earlier, um, that there was some active injustice against somebody. So I think the assumption is if there's demographic inequality, it must be that there was some active uh, discrimination or some active oppression. Uh, but this assumption, as many of these counterexamples suggest, uh, is not true. Um, and since it's not true, what we need is perhaps a, a finer measurement tool. And I, I think that probably does require us to look a bit deeper at the, at the finer details of things, perhaps even on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, of course, I mean, th that's what would be recommended for science anyway, but a lot of people aren't intending to do science when they make these remarks. A lot of people are expressing moral outrage or uh, trying to note that the world is wrong and that we need to do something about it. And, to give us a sense of urgency as to how wrong it is. I wouldn't say that they were wrong or incorrect, um, but yes, if you're going to try to say things about the world, of course, the more accurately we're able to measure things, the better, and that might also mean that generalizations uh, start to break down. Well, Sean, thank you again for a delightful conversation. We, um, I think, spoke fearlessly and uh, in a clear way as possible, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again sometime soon.